0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to the Book of Leviticus. We use these excurses episodes to dig a little deeper into something that we've encountered in a particular book of the Bible that we just didn't have the opportunity to deal with adequately within the time constraints of a normal episode. Most of our episodes here at End of the Word are about 20 minutes long. So sometimes you just have to stick a flag in something and come back to it later. And that's what we're trying to do here. In this excursus episode, I want to come back to the whole issue of law. What is the law? What is it for? Is it still in effect? And if so, how so? Now to get at all those various concerns, I wanna break our discussion down into three parts. First of all, I wanna look at the three uses of the law. Then we'll look at the three types or categories of law. We'll ask the question, is that even a useful way of thinking about the law? Then finally, we'll address three remaining questions about the law by means of bringing this entire conversation in for a landing. All right, let's begin then with the three uses of the law. Reformed Protestant types have tended to speak about three uses of the law. And whether you're Reformed or not, whether you're Protestant or not, we should all be on the same page here because all of these various uses can be easily proved by reference to the Bible. The first use of the law is to restrain evil. After the fall, human beings have a broken moral compass. We desire things that we should not. We pursue things that we should not. Therefore, the law was instituted to function as a sort of fence. It isn't perfect, of course. People can climb fences and they can cut holes in fences, but by and large, fences do slow the spread of evil. And that is one of the main purposes for the law. So the Apostle Paul, for example, says in 1 Timothy 1 9 to 11, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, Close quote. So the law wasn't made for righteous people who are doing what they're supposed to be doing. It was made for sinners. It was laid down to restrain those who would strike their parents, who would murder people, who would engage in sexual immorality, etc. The law was given to restrain that sort of behavior, and we thank God for that. Secondly, we see in the Bible that the law was given to show us our guilt and to lead us to faith in Christ. The law is an impossible standard. It, it looks to us at first like a ladder that we might climb up into heaven. But whenever we try to do that, we exhaust ourselves and we fall flat on our faces. And that's actually a good thing. Because only when we admit our hopeless state are we in a position to put our faith in the perfect obedience and marvelously free grace of Jesus Christ. You can actually see Jesus using the law in this way in his own evangelistic encounters within the Gospels. When the young ruler came up to Jesus, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. That's Luke 18, 18 to 20. Now, what's going on here? Was Jesus Jesus saying that, that we can obey the law and earn salvation? No, he, he was using the law to bring this young man to a place of humility. And of course, as the story goes, Jesus had to ratchet up the pressure a little bit before the man understood that he could not work his way into heaven. Now, on the flip side of that, in the same chapter in Luke 18, we have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which Jesus tells to provide a a, a contrast. Luke 18, 13 to 14, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. So pause. He's not trying to work his way up to heaven. He can't even look up to heaven. Back into the story, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other, closed quote. So according to Jesus, it is the man who knows that he is a sinner who positions himself for salvation. And that's the work of the law. The law is a mirror. It shows us our sin and it humbles us and convinces us of our need for salvation. The Apostle Paul makes this very argument in Romans 3, 19 to 20. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Close quote. Did you hear that? The job of the law is to shut every mouth. And if you study the law, sooner or later, it ought to shut your mouth. Sooner or later, you should become thoroughly convinced of your own fallenness and your own desperate need for mercy and grace. The law convinces us that there is something very, very wrong with us. It shows us how far we have fallen from our original design and glory, and how far we have departed from the pattern and will of God that we see illustrated within its precepts. And that leads us to the third use of the law. The third use of the law is to teach us God's will and God's way. The law is a teacher. We talked about this several times over the course of our walk through Leviticus. John Calvin said, The ceremonial law of the Jews was a tutelage by which the Lord was pleased to exercise, as it were, the childhood of that people until the fullness of the time should come When he was fully to manifest his wisdom to the world and exhibit the reality of those things, which were then adumbrated by figures, and he closes with a quotation in brackets there from Galatians three twenty four and Galatians four four. So Calvin is talking there specifically about the ceremonial law, but all the law functions as a tutelage. It shows us a way of life that corresponds to God's essential character and nature. It shows us how to be humans again, living and behaving in the image and likeness of God. J. Alec Montier says here, the law of God is the way of life he sets before those whom he has saved. And they engage in that way of life as a response of love and gratitude to God, their Redeemer, quote. So the law doesn't save us. Montier says that the law sets before those whom he has saved a way of life as a response of love. That's exactly right. And you can see that pattern in the law itself. In Exodus 20, which is the chapter in Exodus where we we read about the giving of the 10 commandments, we see this. God says in verse 2, "I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me." That's the first commandment and then there are nine others that follow. So God saved them apart from the law. And prior to giving them the law, he gave the law to the people he had already saved out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the importance of understanding that and seeing that order simply cannot be overestimated. Listen, the law is good, but the law doesn't save. It was never meant to save. It was meant to restrain evil. It was meant to position people for salvation, and it was meant to show saved people how to live in the image and likeness of God. All right, so those are the three uses of the law. Now, what about the three types or three categories of the law? Christians will often speak of the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. First of all, is that a reasonable way to speak of the law? Because sometimes the law between ceremonial and And moral law is difficult to discern. For example, in Leviticus 18, we have a list of prohibited sexual activities. Most of these are moral in nature, but one of them anyway is clearly ceremonial. Verses 16 to 20 say, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. So pause there. If you didn't walk with us through Leviticus, that's a euphemism to uncover the nakedness means to enter into the sexual privilege. You, You don't want to enter into the sexual privilege of your brother with his wife. That's inappropriate. Okay, verse 17, you shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter." So pause. So there's a sexuality, there's a privilege that a man might have with a woman, but that's not to be extended to her daughter also. All right, again, jumping back in, I realize this is strange language and not everybody went with this through Leviticus. Second half of verse 17, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness, their relatives it is depravity. Verse 18, and you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. Verse 20, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. All right, so, close quote. So incest is a moral issue, and adultery is a moral issue, but is menstruation a moral issue? Why are, why are all these clumped together? When we looked at chapter 18, I quoted from Robert Gagnon there, commenting on the list of prohibitions as a whole. He says, these prohibitions continue to have universal validity in contemporary society. Only the prohibition against having sexual intercourse with a woman is, in her menstrual uncleanness, does not, close quote. Well, why not? That seems a bit arbitrary, as if we've taken out one of these rules that we don't like and then left all the others that we do like. Is that what's going on here? That's what the critics will sometimes say, but actually a close reading of Leviticus would tend to suggest that actually Gagnon is right. The main concern of Leviticus 18 is to discuss prohibited forms of sexual intimacy, not to explain the difference between moral law and ceremonial law. Now, most forms of prohibited sexual activity are prohibited on moral grounds, but some, this this one, is prohibited on ceremonial grounds, grounds that have been discussed at length in Leviticus chapter 15. In that chapter, the ceremonial issue was discussed at length, as was the process for cleansing and purification, after which normal sexual relations could be resumed. So the ceremonial nature of this particular prohibition had already been established. So we are not randomly picking up one and removing it from the list. Menstruation is not a moral issue. It is a ceremonial issue. Therefore, if we go on to agree that the ceremonial law has expired, then menstruation is logically no longer a factor in determining legitimate and illegitimate sexual activity. So, yes, moral and ceremonial issues are often presented side by side, but it does seem quite possible to distinguish one from another. And so, yes, I think it makes sense in general to use these sorts of categories when talking about types of Old Testament law. However, I would tend to classify this this system as an observational system. I would tend to think of it as useful as opposed to self-evident and eternally binding. Confessional Presbyterians are committed to this language because it's in their creeds and confessions. As a Baptist, however, I feel free to identify this classification system as observationally useful without being committed to it in all respects. And I would tend to agree with Thomas Schreiner here that it does tend to complicate our understanding of the enduring authority of the moral law when we move from Old Testament to New Testament. But let's stick a pin in that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. For now, let's agree that observationally, there there do seem to be three types of law in the Old Testament. We have ceremonial law such as that governing the ordination of the high priest, or the offering of lambs and bulls on the altar. All of that law has been fulfilled in Christ. It was a sign and a tutelage only. When John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was marking the transition from anticipation to fulfillment. We don't sacrifice lambs at at church because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we don't ordain high priests anymore because Jesus is our great high priest, whoever lives before the Father to make intercession for us. Thanks be to God. So the ceremonial law is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Praise the Lord. The second type of law that we observe may be fairly categorized as civil law. We must remember that in the Old Testament, the church and the nation were one and the same. So there are laws in the Old Testament that address a variety of concerns related to civic life, life in society, life in communal settings. There are even building codes in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, it says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it, closed quote. Okay, that's great. Every civilized country in the world has building codes for this very reason. But are all these building codes still binding on New Covenant believers today? John Calvin says that we ought to take the same approach with the civil law, which he calls judicial law, that we took with the ceremonial law. He says, therefore, as ceremonies might be abrogated without at all interfering with piety, so also when these judicial arrangements are removed, the duties and precepts of charity can still remain perpetual. So he's saying, we can still maintain the charitable, the loving impulse, and the basic principles behind the law, while framing and applying those principles in appropriate ways within our own time and culture. So maybe we don't need parapets on our roofs anymore. After all, in those days, people made little rooftop patios so that they had a place to to go to get some fresh air and enjoy the cool evening breezes. I don't have a patio on my roof. But the principle of parapets, railings, and, and various safety measures is still a matter of basic charity. So if you build cars, build them with seatbelts and airbags. If you operate a construction site, do what you can to keep children from wandering in after hours and falling down into a hole. That's the basic idea here. And of course, we see the Apostle Paul doing this very thing, doing this work of extraction and reapplication in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop, closed quote. So there Paul says that the original law was just stating a general principle, but the ultimate application is not to oxen. It is actually to gospel ministers. He makes that point here in 1 Corinthians 9. He makes it again in 1 Timothy 5. This is not ultimately, even when it was given, it was not ultimately about oxen. The general principle is that all laborers should have a right to share in the product of their labors. Oxen certainly, but ultimately, Paul applies that to pastors. So the civil law as a body of laws related specifically to the nation of Israel in its original covenant context and it was suited to their historical and socioeconomic context. Those laws, as such, have expired, though the general equity of those laws should still be respected and maintained and may be freshly applied in a variety of new contexts. All right, so we've got ceremonial law and civil law. Now, what about the moral law? Here's where it gets a little bit tricky let me get to the bottom line first. The bottom line is that whatever was displeasing to God in the Old Testament is displeasing to God in the New Testament. If God didn't like adultery 3,500 years ago, you can be absolutely sure that he doesn't like adultery today because God doesn't change. We talked about this when we were walking through Leviticus chapter 20. We quoted Gordon Wenham there who says, adultery, incest, homosexuality, and the like are just as sinful under the new covenant as they were under the old, closed quote. Amen. That's, that is 100% true. And that's the bottom line. And I don't think you could consider yourself any kind of faithful Bible-believing Christian if you disagreed with that. I, I just, I don't see how you'd get there. For one thing, most of the moral laws are repeated in the New Testament in some way, shape, or form. The command about adultery is tightened by Jesus in Matthew 5. The command about incest is applied by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 to the man who is sleeping with his father's wife. The command about homosexuality is repeated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. So again, I don't think you can consider yourself any kind of orthodox, historical, Bible-believing Christian if you think that our morality as New Testament believers is substantially different than... Than the morality of Old Testament believers. That just won't fly. So that's the bottom line. But there are some legitimate differences in terms of how faithful Bible-believing people arrive at that bottom line. Presbyterians, for example, who have codified that system of understanding the law in these three distinct categories, simply say that the ceremonial and the civil law have been abrogated, but the moral law remains intact. So, for example, the Westminster Confession of Faith says here, the moral law doth forever bind all as well-justified persons as others to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel anyway dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Close quote. So for Presbyterians and Dutch Reform folks, this is pretty simple. Civil and ceremonial law are no more. They're abrogated. They're expired. But the moral law binds all forever. Done. But many other Christians in the Protestant tradition wouldn't quite put it that way. And I count myself among them. I get to the same bottom line. I believe in the same moral code today that would have been recognized as legitimate 3,500 years ago. But I think it is better to say, along with Martin Luther, that the entire Mosaic Law Code, the entire Mosaic Law Code, is abrogated. It expired, along with the nation of Israel. It was a specific covenant made with a specific people, and if we are in Christ, then we are not under the law, period. We we are not under the Mosaic Law in any of its categories or parts. The law was preparatory and provisional. Luther said that about the law of Moses. He said, It is no longer binding on us because it was given only to the people of Israel. Baptist theologian Thomas Schreiner takes the same view. In response to the question of whether the Old Testament law has expired, he wrote, If by the Old Testament law we mean the laws in the covenant established with Moses, then the answer is yes. Since Paul clearly teaches that Christians are no longer under the law covenant instituted under Moses, closed quote. So all the laws in the Mosaic Covenant have expired. They were all part of a covenant that has itself expired in its entirety. But that isn't to say that the moral norms for covenant people have in any way been altered. The moral norms preceded their encoding or their manifestation in the Mosaic law. We, we all know this to be true if we're Bible readers. Ask yourself a question. Was it sinful? Was it immoral for Cain to murder his brother Abel? Of course it was. But why was it? The Mosaic law had not been written. The Ten Commandments had not been written. So how could it be immoral? How could it be sinful? And the answer is that that action did not accord with God's character. Or God's design for human life. So the Mosaic law is best understood as a specific covenantal expression of the eternal law of God with respect to human morality. God has always desired people to safeguard life as opposed to destroying it. God has always desired for people to tell the truth. God has always desired for people to pursue forms of sexuality that will bring comfort to men and women and that will lead to life and flourishing and safety and well-being for children. Now, by the way, Paul makes this kind of argument in Romans 1. He argues against homosexuality, not because it breaks the seventh commandment, but because it clearly defies the purposes for which human sexuality was originally intended. Homosexual sex doesn't lead to life and flourishing it leads to death and destruction. Paul makes an argument from eternal law or from natural law as opposed to Mosaic law. So again, this is why some, maybe even most, Baptist theologians would encourage people not to get locked into those three categories of the law. Thomas Schreiner again says here, to say that the moral elements of the law continue to be authoritative blunts the truth that the entire Mosaic covenant is no longer in force for believers, closed quote. That is true. And if we obscure that glorious reality, it will lead to trouble and potential legalism further down the road. So it probably is best to say that the entire Mosaic law in the Old Testament is abrogated. It is no longer in force. It has no authority as a covenant as a law, over the believer in Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, it functions as a teacher, a guide, and a friend. However, as the Apostle Paul would remind us, to be a believer is to be led by the Spirit. Romans 8.14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we are not under the law. I'm not sure how anyone could argue that. We're not under the law, any of it. Rather, we are led by the Spirit. But of course, the Spirit does not lead us contrary to the law. He leads us in the same way. He leads us even deeper, but he leads us now willingly. We want to go this way. We want to live this way because our hearts are changed and we are following our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. So let's summarize before we move on to our three remaining questions. We've got three uses of the law. The law restrains evil. That's number one. Number two, the law shows us our sin and leads us to Christ. Third use of the law, the law teaches us God's will and God's way. And we also have three types of law, but we want to hold those categories loosely. They're they're observational categories. They're useful in that sense. We have ceremonial laws, we have civil laws, we have moral laws. But all three of these observational categories together are part of the Mosaic Covenant, which has been fulfilled and abrogated in its entirety through the person and work of Christ. So if we are in Christ, then we are not under the Mosaic Law. But that's not to say we ignore the law. On the contrary, we love the law. It's our friend, our teacher, and our guide. We love the ceremonial law because it helps us better understand the sacrifice and ongoing mediation of Christ. We love the civil law because it points us in the direction of equity and charity to our fellow man. And we love the moral law because it represents a perfect embodiment of the eternal law of God, which continues to be binding upon all people everywhere. Does that make sense? All right, now that leaves us with three questions. Question number one, should I be wearing polyester pants? Now, I recognize that's kind of a silly one, but it's actually a helpful place to start. I mean that in a representative way. There are some strange laws in the Old Testament, and sometimes these strange laws get thrown in our faces as Christians as a way of attempting to disqualify the usefulness of the Old Testament as a moral guide. People will say, why should I care about what Leviticus says about human sexuality? when you don't seem to care about what it says about mixing fibers or getting tattoos or shaving the edges of your beard. That's what I'm getting at here. So let's tackle that. The, the question about polyester pants, of course, refers to the rules about mixture. And there are lots of them in the Old Testament. We had several of them in our walk through Leviticus. In Leviticus 19, for example, it says, "'You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind.'" You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Well, that's polyester. That's what the word polyester means. All right, so that's in Leviticus 19, the chapter right after the chapter about human sexuality. So people, critics might say, how, how come you still care about homosexuality from chapter 18, but you don't mind riding on a mule or wearing polyester pants, which are outlawed in Leviticus 19? Aren't you just picking and choosing which which of these laws you're going to retain? Now, for those of you who don't know, a mule is an animal that results from crossbreeding a horse and a donkey. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you've probably ridden on a mule. Was that sinful for you to do? And the answer, of course, is no. These laws had a pedagogical function. Remember, Calvin said that the law was a tutelage. It was teaching the Jewish people important things in their infancy. One of the things they were learning was how to make a distinction. So Leviticus 11, 46 to 47 says, this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean. If God's people are going to be a kingdom of priests and if they're going to be a holy nation, then they're going to have to learn to make distinctions. So in their infancy, they practiced on animals, seeds, and fibers. But we're not in our infancy anymore. We have the fulfillment of these things in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. So we've graduated beyond seeds and fibers. So go out and buy yourself a nice polyester golf shirt and ride that mule down into the valley of the Grand Canyon. That's perfectly fine now. But laws about sexuality are not in that category. The New Testament doesn't forbid mules or polyester, but it does forbid adultery and homosexuality. That's that's not hermeneutical sleight of hand. That's careful reading of the text. The laws on mixture are given explicitly to teach people to make distinctions. The laws on sexuality are related to the laws of nature and are intended to keep people from doing things that are hateful to God and destructive to human life. So there actually is a big difference here. So if you know why a law was given, then that should help you understand why it is or is not picked up and retained and repeated in the New Testament. All right, the second remaining question is this. Should we expect our modern-day civil governments to rule in accordance with Mosaic civil law? Here's what I mean by this. Imagine that Bible-believing Christians represented 51% of a country's electorate. Should we use our votes to make blasphemy punishable by death? It is punishable by death in the Mosaic civil law. Should we use our votes to make rebellion against parents punishable by death or homosexuality punishable by death. All those things were capital crimes under the Mosaic civil law. So should they be, again, should the Mosaic civil law be our aspirational target for our civil governments as New Testament Christians? Now, some Christians say yes. Classical theonomy says yes. But most Christians say no. Most Christians would argue that the Mosaic law was an enactment of God's law as applied to a country, the country of Israel. It was appropriate for them in their context. Their context was agricultural. Ours, by and large, is not. It was appropriate to them as a combination of church and state. We, however, now exist as a church inside a variety of states. So most Christians would say that countries today need not be governed by Mosaic law, but rather should be governed by principles of natural law and general prudence. John Calvin was definitely not sympathetic to the claims made by some in his day that Christians needed to impose the law of Moses on their civil governments as the only legitimate ruling standard. He said, "...for there are some who deny that any commonwealth is rightly framed which neglects the law of Moses and is ruled by the common law of nations." how perilous and seditious these views are. Let others see. For me, it is enough to demonstrate that they are stupid and false, closed quote. So Mark John Calvin down as opposed to the idea that civil governments today need to somehow enact a version of the Mosaic Civil Code. The Westminster Confession of Faith takes a similar approach, though they state it more kindly than Calvin did. Speaking of the civil law, it says, to them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other, now, further than the general equity thereof may require. Closed quote. Did you hear that? Which expired together with the state of that people, with the state of Israel, not obliging any other further than the general equity thereof may require. So, the general principles of fairness and equity behind the laws should be retained, but applied in whatever ways best align with the circumstances of the nation now in question. So, practically, Christians should vote for laws that reflect biblical views on life, commerce, community, morality, and sexuality, because we believe those things lead to human flourishing but we should not expect civil governments to enforce the totality of Old Testament biblical law. We should expect wisdom, charity, equity, and fairness, and we should be careful about asking the government to do more than ought to be expected of it. And that leads us to our third question. What about all the punishments associated with moral issues in the Old Testament Mosaic law? If the laws in the Mosaic Covenant teach us what is hateful to God, then shouldn't we apply the punishments that we see in the Old Testament associated with those various sins and infractions? We talked about this when we were walking through Leviticus 20. In Leviticus 20, we have a bunch of punishments associated with various transgressions. And so the issue does come up. What do we do with all of these punishments in the New Testament? Are are we supposed to be stoning rebellious children? Are we supposed to be executing adulterers, homosexuals, and people who commit incest? are, Are we supposed to be asking the government to do that? To answer this question, we have to figure out how the theocratic nation of Israel functions in biblical typology, meaning we have to figure out what it's pointing to. Is it pointing to the church or is it pointing to the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ? I think the answer has to be that it is pointing to the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. If it were pointing to the church, then we would expect the Apostle Paul to have ordered the death penalty on the person committing incest in 1 Corinthians 5. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Closed quote. So Paul orders excommunication, not execution. He does not see the church as the fulfillment of the prophetic anticipation of the theocratic kingdom of Israel. And that appears to be the common understanding of the New Testament church. And I think it ought also to be our understanding still today. Gordon Wenham says here, as New Testament Christians acknowledge the divine authority of this legislation, but recognized that it was impossible to enforce in their time, so must the modern church. Yet we may still profit from studying these laws. They remind us that however lightly modern man regards such conduct in God's sight, it constitutes grave and serious sin meriting the severest censure, quote. So that's the issue. The issue is not what the church does to these people. Ultimately, the issue is what God will do. And that is Paul's ultimate concern in 1 Corinthians 5. He says that we need to excommunicate this brother so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul is looking forward to the final judgment because the final judgment is the day that will conclude human history and fully consummate the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. And that is what these Old Testament punishments ultimately anticipate. Adultery is a capital crime, incest, is a capital crime. But the reckoning for these things is ultimately not in the church or in the contemporary state. The ultimate reckoning for these things is at the final judgment. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, close quote. Paul says anyone who persists in these behaviors will have to give an account for these behaviors at the final judgment. No one who has held on to these behaviors will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says. That's what the Bible says. And so that's what we need to say as well. The punishments in the Old Testament prefigure, they point to the outcomes and condemnations we can expect at the final judgment. Because theocratic Israel is a type not of the church, but of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. So, to bring this conversation in for a landing, it is not the church's job, and it is not the government's job, to execute the sexually immoral, or the rebellious son, or the blasphemer, It is ultimately God's job, and that will happen at the final judgment. Our job as a church is to warn people. It is to tell the truth, and sometimes that will mean saying to a person, if you don't let this sin go, it will drag you down to hell come judgment day. Sometimes we'll even have to put someone outside the church as a way of warning them that they are destined to be outside the kingdom of God forever, if they hold on to this sin. Now, the job of the state is to restrain evil and to encourage good. So they can and they should incentivize marriage, for example, because it is good for people and it is good for children and it is good for society in general. But I think it is a bridge too far and I think it's a giant distraction for us to be asking the state and pressuring the state and constantly petitioning the state to punish blasphemy. Or to criminalize homosexuality. I don't see a mandate for that in the New Testament. Again, as Gordon Wenham says, as New Testament Christians acknowledge the divine authority of this legislation, so they they totally understood that this absolutely and perfectly reflects God's will and character. Okay, let me let me read that again so you understand what's being said. As New Testament Christians acknowledged the divine authority of this legislation, the, these laws in the Old Testament, but recognized that it was impossible to enforce in their time. So must the modern church, close quote. If we make that our goal, to seize the sword of Caesar, to enforce our biblical morality, we will lose our focus and we will forfeit our witness in the culture. Not to mention the danger of losing the very essence of the gospel. The gospel doesn't say to a person, obey these rules and you can be in. The gospel says, admit you are a sinner and God will forgive you, heal you, and restore you and then help you to live as you were created and intended to do. So I am less interested in putting the adulterer in jail than I am in bringing him or her to the feet of Jesus Christ. Jesus can forgive that person. Jesus can heal that person. Jesus can give that person a new heart and a new spirit and can actually make that person want to be faithful and want to be holy. So why would I use the law to do what the law has never been able to do? So, all that to say, let's use the law and love the law according to its original design and intention. And let's use the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit for the things for which those gifts were given to us as well. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to this special excursus episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. The easiest way for you to access all the Into the Word content is by downloading the Into the Word app. You can find that wherever you find your apps. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. Hope to see you again real soon, right here for another episode of Into the Word.